before you this morning and ask that you would uh, bless our time together. As we look at these two short verses, we, we pray uh, that you speak powerfully through your Holy Spirit. Um, if our hearts are distracted, uh, we pray, but for a moment, uh, that they would be quietened, uh, that we may uh, experience um, hearing from you uh, this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so the last time I, I was preaching, uh, we were in Romans 9. Um, it was about 30 verses, and I took about 30 minutes. This morning we've got two verses, and so, you know, maybe, maybe two minutes will be, will be done. They'll be nice and quick. Um, that would be the case if this wasn't such an important um, set of verses. See, Romans 12, 1 to 2 is essentially a hinge point between all that has gone before us in the book of Romans what will come ahead. It connects the wonderful news of God who mercifully saves sinners through Jesus in chapters 1 to 11 with what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in chapters 12 to the end of Romans. These two verses give us the foundation for understanding how does the gospel of Jesus transform and shape your everyday life. It reminds us that the gospel is not some abstract a theory, an idea that makes us feel warm and cozy inside. But the gospel is something that takes root in the life of a believer. It brings concrete and real-world transformation. It shapes everything, what you think, what you say, how you live. And so Paul starts off in this passage quite passionately, I urge you. He speaks as an ambassador, a messenger from God. And he gives us the key to fostering, to creating a ripe and fertile soil by which Jesus might live and transform our lives. And the key that Paul lays out in, this two, in these two verses is boiled down to one word. That word is worship. Worshipping God is the key to being able to live out the ethical implications of knowing Jesus. Basically, what does it mean to follow Jesus in this world? And so as we look at these two verses, I want you to know this. You are to worship God alone with your whole life. It's very simple, very easy, but quite profound. You're to worship God alone with your whole life. Um, if you want to follow along, um, essentially we're going to have three points. Uh, the reality of worship, the way of worship, and the marks of worship. We're going to be thinking about what it means to worship God with your whole life. So firstly, let's think about this passage within the context of the reality of worship. Worship. Well, what comes to mind when I say that word? Often it's, it's a really religious term. Those people that, that you know, are part of religions, those people that believe in a higher power or a supernatural being, they're the people that come to mind when we use the word worship. But the reality of worship is it's not something exclusive to the religious people. The reality of worship is it's something that everyone does. Everyone here in this building, regardless of whether you're a churchgoer or a Christian or, or something else, you're all a worshipper. Now, the natural reaction is, well, I don't believe in a higher power. I don't worship anything or anyone. And that's true in some sense. If you look at the Old Testament, the beginning part of the Bible, so often worship is associated with people bowing down to statues. Or maybe they're sacrificing sort of goats and stuff at temples. And you say, well, I'm not, I don't do that. But as you read the Bible more carefully, we start to see that worship is more than an outward action. Worship is something that stems from within. God says to people, these men have set up idols in their hearts, Ezekiel 14.3. In other occasions, 
We see that there, Paul writes to a church and he says their God is their belly or, or their stomach in Philippians 3.19. It's this idea that there is something within and worship is about the longing of our hearts. It's what we orient ourselves towards in order to gain a good life. See, friends, worship is ultimately a question about allegiance. Let me say that again. Worship is ultimately a question about allegiance. What do you desire more than anything else in this world? Who or where do you turn to when you're scared? What do you pursue in order to attain your version of the good life? Think about it for a moment. Now, back in ancient times, the, the good life might have been a few things. It might have been a steady rainfall that leads to a plentiful harvest. The good life might have been safe passage uh, while you traveled by sea or by land. And so people would bow down, prostrate themselves um, to, to stone statues, to wooden, to, to wooden idols. Uh, they would sacrifice at temples in order to gain this. What happens in the 21st century? Well, for, for some of us, the good life is a life that is comfortable safe and secure. And so many of us, many in this world, will endure difficult working conditions, annoying managers and bosses, stupid deadlines, all with the hope that our jobs will provide the income that we need to build a safe and comfortable future. Maybe for some of us, the good life is a, a life that is marked by love and acceptance. Some people out there grind in the gym for hours on end, hoping to sculpt the perfect body uh, that they may be adored by others. Others are constantly thinking about the clothes you wear, the food you eat, the culture you adopt, so that people will think that you're more impressive, more acceptable, or more attractive. But maybe the good life for some of us here is, is a life that, where we are significant. And I remember spending tireless hours at uni, grinding away, hoping to make sure that I had a good enough job to, to essentially arrive in this world to be somebody. See, friends, life in this world in the 21st century is just like life in the ancient times. We just worship at different temples. We just bow down to different statues. And so if worship is about the desires and allegiances of our heart to gain what we ultimately want, we recognize that whether you're a Christian or a Buddhist, whether you're an atheist or a skeptic, all of us are worshippers. That's the reality. The question is not whether you will worship. Uh, the question is, who do you worship? It's not whether you worship, it's who do you worship? Where do your allegiances lie? Paul wants us to see that the ability to, to live out the gospel in our lives requires us to be worshippers of God. If you worship God, the natural outworking of your everyday life is to become more like Jesus. And so we start off with a simple question. Do you worship God? Do you worship the God of the Bible? I'm going I'm I'm to probably think that a lot of us here, uh, the default answer is to say, of course I do, of course I worship God. But I wonder whether our thoughts, our actions, our lifestyles reflect what we say. How would you answer some of these questions? What do you crave? What do you dream about? Where does your mind drift to instinctively when you're waiting for that stupid bus that is half an hour late? What do you trust in for hope and confidence? What makes you sleep well at night? What do you turn if you're feeling a bit uncertain about life? What gives you a sense of purpose or meaning? 
See, friends, if, if the answer is anything apart from Jesus, the God of the Bible, then it's possible you don't actually worship Him at all. See, the reality is it's not wrong to study hard, to get a good job, to, to get good marks and to earn a lot of money. It's not wrong to eat well or to exercise regularly. It's not wrong to want to be significant in this world and make a, good, a difference and do good in this world. However, if your vision of a good life consumes you, if these things end up becoming the things which we sacrifice everything for, that we give all our time and, and money and energy, we, we demonstrate we, we no longer worship the true and living God. We're actually seeking after other gods to provide only what the God of the Bible says He will provide. And so as we look at verse 1, Paul implores us to worship the God of the Bible. Look there with me, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your true and proper worship. The reason Paul urges us to turn to God, well, it's right at the beginning of verse 1. Therefore, what does he have in mind? Well, I think it's verse, chapters 1 to 11. He has that in mind as he says, therefore. But I think it's helpfully summarized as what he says next. In view of God's mercy. It's a beautiful summary of how God has acted towards humanity. See, at the beginning of Romans, we see that the default orientation, the default allegiance of your heart and mine is actually away from God. We stand before God as, as people who seek out after other gods. We turn away from God instead of towards Him, and because of that, we stand before God as those who are judged and condemned. Our actions lead us to be far from God, alienated, to be worthy of death and judgment. Yet we read in Romans that God is merciful and kind and generous. He sends His only Son, Jesus, to reverse our predicament, to die on the cross in the place of God's people, so that those in Jesus would find forgiveness, life beyond death. Those in Jesus would have their hearts transformed so they may live as those that worship the living and true God. See, friends, in Jesus, we experience the fullness of every spiritual blessing. You are given riches beyond belief. You are accepted and approved of unconditionally by the God of this world. You are given a hope that does not spoil or perish or fade, depending on circumstances. And so Paul is calling God's people, the church and you this morning, to worship this God. In light of all that he has done, the mercy that he's shown, Paul calls the church and, and you to show allegiance to this God, to worship Him with your whole lives. See, friends, the reality of worship is that all of us worship, but the question is not where, whether you worship, it's who do you worship? Well, you might be thinking, okay, well, fair enough. Well, how do I know I'm worshiping the living and true God? Well, I think Paul gives us the, the, the plan for that in verse 2. Uh, which is the way of worship. Why don't we look there in verse 2, or right at the beginning. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, Paul tells us the way to worship God is essentially to reject uh, the way of this world. Uh, literally translated, it's do not conform to this age. The age is this shorthand for the sin-dominated, death-producing realm, world in which people live without Jesus. And the reason we shouldn't conform ourselves to it, well, Paul writes to the church in Galatians, in Galatians 1 verse 4, and he says, Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. 
Paul is calling people to turn from, from living like the world, from a world that is beautiful and alluring and attracting, that is offering us a good life, a life apart from God. And so Paul says, do not be like the world, uh, but to worship, be transformed in the renewing of your minds, to see the beauty of the gospel. You see, it's, it's don't conform to the world, but, but do become like Jesus, do think like the gospel. No, the transformation here is not something that we just do by ourselves. The verb there is passive, be transformed by how? The renewing of your mind, the Holy Spirit coming into our lives, teaching us the truth. And so as you open your Bible, as you read about who God is and what He has done, as you read the narratives of the gospel that, that teach us that God is loving, that God is just and merciful, all this information the Holy Spirit takes and applies to our mind. It recalibrates our vision of what life is all about. See, Paul is calling for you to think differently. I think there's really interesting ties back to Romans 1 in this passage. The question is, will you be conformed to this world? Will you act like those in this world, exchanging the glory of God for the worship of other gods? Or will you worship the true and living God? Verse Chapter 1, verse 20 the God whose eternal power and divine nature has been clearly revealed since the creation of this world. Paul's call to worship God should be a challenge to every one of you this morning. Whoever you are, you're not beyond temptation to be like this world, to think like this world. I've mentioned a few times that a number of years ago, I, I used to live in London. And if you've, if you've been in the United Kingdom for any amount of time, uh, you know that this nation is a bit crazy about soccer, or, or football as they would call it. Um, it's on the news, it's on the tabloids, the radio talks about it. Basically, you can't live with there without absorbing football. And so it was really weird, after a, you know, a, a amount of months there, I could talk about you know, who the best players in the league were, which teams were doing well. I didn't even like soccer. It was just so like, infectious. I couldn't help but, but be able to kind of converse about soccer. I even like, played like five-a-side soccer. I don't, I'm, I'm not even skilled in the game. But I did it anyway because everyone else was doing it. I think as we live in this world, as we're constantly bombarded by the voices of this world, if you aren't careful, you start to adopt the mindset of this world. You start to live as those who are of this world. I think there are there are a whole number of ways in which Christians can, can kind of follow after this world. I want to point out three I think that all of us likely struggle with. I think the world tells us that there's no life after death, and, and often I think we buy into this. See, the world tells us that the world is all that there is, so just live life to the max. And so it affects how we prioritize our time. I mean, how often do you plan your week, the next month, maybe the year ahead, based on the fact that if you know Jesus, you will live for eternity. So we're so quick to prioritize things on what, what's really important, what's coming up, what's pressing, but rarely do we consider prioritizing things that have eternal consequences. But if it's not prioritizing our time, so often because we think the world is all that there is, we are consumed by our own pleasure. Our pursuit of joy in the here and now so often determines how you spend your time, uh, your money, your relationships. Rarely do we forgo pleasure in the present, even though we will know we will receive eternal joy. So often do we think that this world is all that there is. 
But if you don't think like that, well, maybe you think like the next person. You think like the world says, I am all alone. There's this spirit of autonomy and self-reliance that the world says, that if you want things done right, well, I've got to do it myself. I can't trust anyone else. And so maybe as you think about your work and your career, you need to be constantly positioning yourself for career advancement and success. If you don't take every opportunity that you get presented, then you're going to miss out. And so even if you have to sacrifice your relationship with your family or friends and they suffer, or maybe even a relationship with God, you can't help it because there's no one out there to help me. How quickly can we think like this? But if it's not with our jobs, maybe it's with our money. I can't rely on others to support me, to help me. And so if I want a stable future, I need to hoard my money. I can't, I can't afford to be generous because who is going to be generous to me? I'm all alone. Or maybe we say like the world, I'm defined by my actions. I have a desire to self-create my own identity. I mean, people eat a certain way, they work out for a certain reason, also that they may be defined by what they look like. But if it's not working out or eating well, I know as a parent, it's so tempting to compare myself, to judge others based on what they do or don't do. I'm consumed, my identity is so much linked to what I do. That defines who I am. Maybe for some of us, it's relationships. We constantly pursue certain types of relationships. We bend over backwards to stay in relationships. Why? Because we're defined by whether we're in or whether we're out. See, friends, is it possible that we've been seduced to think like this world? That we don't live in light of God's mercy? That our seemingly neutral patterns of thinking actually reflect more of this world than the gospel? Is it be possible that we actually haven't been transformed, the glorious truths of the gospel have not washed over our hearts. The gospel calls us to believe differently. It tells us there is a life beyond death, and so eternity shapes every action that we participate in. It tells us that you are not alone, that God protects and provides for His people, so we don't need to act as if every decision we make counts based on our, what we want. The gospel tells us that our identity is not fixed to our performance, but to the performance of Jesus. So you are free to live in a way that honors Christ, even though you may be less acceptable before others. The way of worship is to be transformed by the gospel, by the renewing of your mind. To let gospel truths like these wash over and saturate you, captivate your imaginations, mesmerize you, so that you can't possibly think about any other way. And so that even though we live in this world, we don't become conformed to be like it. We need to recognize that worship is not just the way way we think. Do you notice, look at the end of of verse 2. We're transformed in our minds so that we may be discerning. We may be discerning. The worship of God is not just thinking correctly, but it's living correctly as well. See, worshiping God is not just following a bunch of rules or being, doing mechanical actions to please God. It's about being transformed in our thinking that we may consider in each and every situation how we can love God and love our neighbor. So this leads us to our last point, what it means to actually live as those who worship God in the marks of worship. See, Paul calls the Roman church to recognize the new pattern of worship 
See, previously, Jews would go to the temple and that's where they would worship God. But Paul is telling them worship is no longer confined to a particular place. Worship is the whole of your life. How you think, what you say, how you live, all of it is an opportunity to demonstrate an allegiance to God. And so Paul, back in verse 1, actually spells out what it looks like to worship God with your life. We see one thing, don't we? Those who worship God are living sacrifices. A bit of an odd term. Um, Living sacrifice is technically an oxymoron. Um, I had to go look this up, but technically an oxymoron is a figure of speech with self-contradictory terms. So we get the idea of life, living, and death as well, sacrifice. Uh, in, In many ways, it's life as a worshiper of God is a living death. This is the narrative of the Christian life. In view of God's mercy, Christians are called to die to the pattern of this world, die to self-interest and self-autonomy. Christians are to be transformed in thought, word, and deed, committing themselves to the service of God, seeking to love those around them. The sacrifice that we are called to offer God is a life where we continually die to the sinful desires of the flesh, is a life continually growing in the love of God and our neighbor. But we notice that it's not just a living sacrifice, but the sacrifice or the idea of worship is holy and pleasing to God. Remember what Jason said about holiness? It's to be set apart. It's not contaminated or polluted. It's to be pure and perfect. And so I think this term highlights the extensiveness, the all-encompassing nature of worshiping God. Worship of God is not something for certain days of the week. Sundays, maybe midweek, during community group. It's not for certain places, maybe at church or, or at a Bible study group. Nor is it something that is only for certain parts of our lives. Worship of God is all-encompassing. It's wide-ranging. All thoughts of ours are surrendered and captivated by Christ. But all our words and our actions too are devoted to Christ. Your whole life becomes given over to Jesus. I think this is quite a challenging thing if you think about it correctly. I think many of us here, those who say that we believe and follow Jesus, would say there are many things in our lives which we have died to, which we follow Christ in. But so often there are those those things in our lives in which we don't want to give up. I think a common one is that we want to value our comfort more than the comfort of others. My vision for this church is that a church, we're a church which is counter-cultural. In, in that sense, we care more about others so often than we care about ourselves. And so often we're looking around after church finishes to see the person that doesn't have anyone to talk to. See, in these moments, we are given an opportunity to die to ourselves. Not to turn to our friend and say, hey, how are you going? Though we may do that, but to always be seeking that person that doesn't have anyone. We want to be people that extend a warm welcome, even though we're tired and don't have much to say. We want to be extending a warm welcome, even though it's awkward and they give us one-word answers. We want to be extending a warm welcome, even though you'd much rather go out with other people and talk to them. This is a great opportunity and a great example of what it means to die to ourselves and seek the love of others more than we seek our own comfort. Friends, what areas in your life do you think 
that you're still clinging on to. See, friends, if you follow Jesus, this passage is a call to give your whole life to King Jesus. We should be compelled to do so. Why? Because of the mercy of God. See, God in His great mercy, instead of declaring that He was so great and that we were to worship Him, He said, even though I am great, I will come and serve you by sending Jesus. Christ came as the ultimate example of a living sacrifice. He wrestled in the Garden of Gethsemane with the plan of God, but continued to submit His will to the will of the Father. He went to the cross, and instead of metaphorically dying, as we are called to do, He literally gave His life so that you could have life. By His great mercy, Christ redeemed His people, and He brought them not just into His kingdom, but into His family. And so we read in Ephesians 1 verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Over the past 24 hours, I've been thinking about a song called The Wonderful Cross. In the chorus, I think of of this song, we hear these two lines. Oh, the wonderful cross, oh, the wonderful cross, bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. I think it's a beautiful reflection of this passage. In light of the cross, we are called to come and die, putting to death our allegiances to anyone apart from King Jesus. But as we do this, instead of experiencing death, we experience life. We find that we truly live. My wife pointed me to a, a, uh, a Facebook post last night. Uh, this man uh, that was kind of uh, being interviewed or talked to uh, was a persecuted Christian uh, in the Middle East. Um, basically, he lost his earthly possessions to ISIS. He was a rich and successful man, three houses, numerous cars, a business that employed multiple people. Listen to what he says. Before they took away everything, I was a Christian only by name. But now my faith is alive. ISIS is a gift. ISIS comes, if ISIS comes to the West, it is a gift from the Lord. It will be a wake-up call for a sleepy church. If you want to spend your time working for more money and more houses and just going along to church on Sundays, you can lose it. But if you work for God, you can never lose it. So I say to the Western church, wake up, wake up. Christians in the West don't want to die because they are more in love with life than Jesus. See, as you hear this man, as you respond to this passage, we need to ask ourselves one question. Is every aspect of my life a reflection of someone who worships God alone? While there be many areas in our lives that really do reflect devotion to God and allegiance to the King, uh, it's going to be a number of areas in our lives where we do seek after other gods. This passage is a call to repentance, a call to turn back to God, to identify areas in your life where the good life has actually nothing to do with Jesus, to identify areas where we think like this world instead of having the gospel saturate our thoughts, to identify areas where we refuse to let God become sovereign and rule over 
See, friends, worshipping God is about allegiance. He's calling you today to give every part of yourself to Him. In light of God's great mercy, I pray that we would offer our minds and our bodies as a living sacrifice. Let me pray. Oh, good God, you have given us far more than we would deserve. You have been merciful beyond all proportions. And we stand before you as those that have been reconciled, no longer facing your anger, no longer facing your judgment, but those who are in Christ, enjoying the the fruits of our brother Jesus' death. Help us to be compelled to be mesmerized by the beauty of the gospel so that we may give our whole lives, that our allegiances may be to the King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.